This is Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and today we're going to talk about social media. Yes, social media. This is not my favorite topic, but it is a critical topic, and it's one that a lot, a lot of authors spend a lot of time t- thinking about and talking about. And often, when we talk about social media, and other gurus as well, will say, just pick one social network and focus on that one, and you know, find one that works for you. And what I've realized is that this is not enough info because inevitably people pick Facebook when you give them that kind of advice. And Facebook, for most authors, most of the time, is the wrong pick. So uh, I'm going to try a different approach. We're going to go through the different social networks and talk about what kind of authors thrive on those social networks. And when I talk about thriving, a good metaphor to use is um, like a plant. There's certain environments where certain plants will thrive. So a palm tree thrives in a tropical environment. Put it on a tropical island, it grows like a weed. Can you get a palm tree to grow in Norway? Sure but it will cost a fortune in both time and treasure. You're building this giant greenhouse around this uh, palm tree that's not designed to grow in that environment. You'd be much better off planting that palm tree in Barbados or even waiting for it to plant itself because that environment is perfect for palm trees. So with that said, we're going to have a lot of overgeneralizations in this episode, Uh, but the general point is true. Palm trees prefer... Uh, tropical environments, and certain kinds of authors thrive on certain kinds of social networks. The goal of this episode is to help you understand the difference uh, between the various social networks and find out which one is right for you, if any of them are right for you. And it's okay if none of these fit. You don't have to do social media to be a successful author. I was just talking with an author the other day who just passed $100,000 worth of sales on one of his books, and he did it with no social media whatsoever. But some authors find a lot of success with social media. And so we're going to talk about which social networks work for which kinds of authors. So let's start with Instagram. Authors who thrive on Instagram are beautiful photographers. Why? Because Instagram is a selfie-driven medium. The better you look in your selfie, the easier it will be to get followers. There's a reason why fashion models and celebrities do so well on Instagram. Uh, Instagram is a real-time celebration of the current cultural definition of beauty. Uh, And it's also a celebration of excellent photography. So Instagram, when it started, it was all about adding filters to make mediocre photos look better. In each year, people use fewer filters. In fact, a lot of people don't even think of Instagram as having filters anymore because of how much less popular the filters have become. And instead, Instagrammers are relying more on excellent photographic technique. So it's all about just taking really good photographs. So my wife, uh, my beautiful wife, who took a photography class in college, is amazing at Instagram. It plays very well to her strengths. Uh, She has a private account um, because she, unlike me, doesn't like uh, the limelight. But she's very good at Instagram. And I'm constantly getting comments uh, from our mutual friends on my wife's Instagram. I am not a beautiful photographer, and Instagram is not the right social network for me. 
All right, so now let's talk about Twitter. Authors who thrive on Twitter are pithy snarks. So each year, Twitter gets snarkier. Uh, it's a social network that thrives on outrage, uh, more than perhaps any other social network, with the possible exception of YouTube. Um, Twitter, The Twitter mob almost demands a weekly celebrity sacrifice, somebody who's done something wrong that everyone can feel righteous about criticizing. Uh, and if you want to be successful at, at Twitter, if you want to grow your own following at Twitter, it really helps to have clear, defined enemies. Now, your enemy can be anyone, right? So if you are standing up against sexual abuse, your enemy are people who are conducting sexual violence. Uh, but it, it's a very kind of polarized, very political social network, and it's often more about who you're against than who you're for. Another th key to success on Twitter is knowing how to keep the conversation on Twitter. Uh, this requires a level of brevity that is unique to Twitter. So for a long time, Twitter had a limit of 140 characters. That's been raised recently, but the uh, trend, the norm on Twitter is still to have very brief, pithy uh, communication. Now, I will say, being pithy and snarky both operate independently. There are authors who are able to thrive just by being pithy. They're very pithy. They're very witty. They're able to post very succinct bits of wisdom or humor that have people intrigued. And there are other authors who succeed on Twitter just by being snarky. And they post rambling snark fest, but people really enjoy getting angry and outraged with them. Uh, what a lot of authors make the mistake about doing is they'll go on Twitter and just kind of carpet bomb it with links to their content other places. They're posting to their YouTube videos or they're posting to their blog posts. And uh, the Twitter culture isn't big on that. What Twitter wants is to have conversations that stay on Twitter, which can make it a little bit tricky when you are wanting people to go and buy your book. But you can make it work, and certain authors do uh, very well on Twitter, especially if they're very snarky. <laughs> I found that kind of personality really uh, enjoys Twitter. That kind of person is probably already on Twitter. If you aren't on Twitter, uh, if you've gone the last 12 years without getting on Twitter, Twitter's probably not going to work for you <laughs> because it's, uh, the, it's attracted the kind of people who are going to do well on it. All right. Now let's talk about Facebook. Authors who thrive on Facebook are rich advertisers. So Facebook no longer allows you to reliably communicate with your fans without paying for it. Uh, if you pay, uh, you can even talk to other people's fans too. So advertising on Facebook is incredibly powerful. It's it's arguably the most nuanced, powerful advertising platform in the world, which is why Facebook is such a wealthy company. Uh, the only other advertising engine that rivals Facebook is Google. Uh, the advertising approach is fundamentally different. So with Google, you're targeting people who are t uh, searching for a certain thing, and you want to be that thing that they search for. On Facebook, though, you're able to target a certain kind of person, and you can target people based off of all kinds of demographic, psychographic, and interest-based uh, areas. So another author who built a following on Twitter, on Facebook, you can advertise to that author's fans. And if you invest in building a platform on Facebook, other authors can pay to advertise to your fans. <laughs> so uh, it is really an advertiser's game. It's an advertiser's platform. And if you are a savvy advertiser and if you have the money to pay for advertising, uh, you can do very well on Facebook. And I know authors who are able to attract many, many readers profitably 
using Facebook ads. In fact, we've had episodes uh, recently on the show. Chris Fox uses Facebook very successfully to buy readers effectively. He's able to buy $1,000 worth of readers for effectively $500 worth of ads or I think $300 worth of ads. So it's a really good bargain for him because he's a savvy advertiser. And if you want to learn more about that, you can listen to that episode. That is episode 193, and we will have a link to it in the show notes. Now, Facebook groups can still work for organizing launch teams. A lot of authors have success organizing their launch teams on Facebook, and there's a lot of good arguments uh, for organizing your launch team on Facebook. And they can also work for connecting uh, small communities or or large communities for that matter. Uh, So there's a lot of author communities that will talk to each other and give helpful information. And the Facebook group for this podcast is a great example. And we'll have a link to it. Those of you who are not on the Facebook group, it's actually one of my favorite Facebook groups. It's a pretty vibrant Facebook group. People post questions. I get on there and answer uh, questions. But even better, other listeners of this show answer questions. And if you want to get answers to your bookmarking questions from a savvy group of folks, uh, we have a really savvy group of listeners. There's a reason why uh, many of our listeners uh, become guests on our show eventually, because they, uh, they really know what they're talking about. So there are ways of making Facebook work, but in general, Facebook is a platform primarily for wealthy advertisers. All right, let's talk about Quora. Authors who thrive on Quora are... Helpful intellectuals. So Quora, which is my personally, my favorite social network, is all about asking smart questions that smart people want to answer. Uh, It's one of the friendliest and most helpful social networks on this list because it's all about gathering knowledge. So it's, uh, in some ways, it's the least superficial of the social networks. It's not about being beautiful or posting beautiful photos. It's not about being witty and pithy. It's about uh, diving deep on topics uh, that are deep topics, whether it's history or philosophy, psychology, technology. Uh, It's more of a nonfiction uh, world. It's more for nonfiction authors to kind of use it as a marketing tool, but it's actually incredibly helpful for novelists who are wanting to do research. If you wanted to know who would win 500 elves from Middle Earth or uh, 500 Klingons from the Star Trek universe, and you wanted fans of those particular um, topics to debate, right? Because you have species that are based off of those in your book. Uh, Korra is the one place where you could get actual Klingon experts and actual uh, Tolkienian elves experts to answer your question and put a lot of thought into it. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. Some of the things people go into embarrassingly amount, high amounts of uh, research. In fact, there's a great series of questions I saw about what would happen if the Empire from Star Wars attacked Earth. (laughs) And it wouldn't turn out as bad for the Earthlings as you might think, because Star Wars technology is completely devoid of any protection from hackers. (laughs) All of those systems are super easy to hack, and they have no internet. So while we don't have the spaceships, we have the computers, and we can make uh, their lives very difficult. Um, but uh, Cora also has the lowest concentration of celebrities of any of the social networks on this list. It has the least amount of buzz from like mainstream media. And so it's, in some ways, it's probably the easiest of all of these social networks to get started on right now because it's still kind of in its early days, depending on which area you're building uh, your expertise in. So I personally really like Cora. This of, of the ones that fit me personally, I try to be a helpful intellectual. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm always helpful and I don't know if I'm always intellectual, but um, 
it's the one that I personally enjoy the most, both as a creator of content, but also as a consumer of content. I, I really like to nerd out on history there. There's a really great history community. So if you're writing historical fiction and you're wanting information on a certain era, one of the fastest ways of getting um, picking the brains of experts for free is Quora.com. And uh, if you've never tried Quora, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you can always always just, just Google it. It's, it's on Google. It's easy to find. All right. The next social network is Goodreads. Authors who thrive on Goodreads are amazing writers. So Goodreads readers are much more honest in their reviews than Amazon reviewers because they're writing their reviews for their own friends rather than for strangers. And oftentimes people are wanting to write an Amazon review to signal that they have read a good book or they're writing it for the author's benefit. So for a lot of books that have fewer than 100 reviews, a good percentage of those books, sometimes the majority of those books, are written by friends of the author or the launch team of the author. And so the reviews are less trustworthy because of that. Whereas Goodreads reviews are sorted based off social proximity. So if I have a friend who's reviewed a book, his review is going to show up first above all of the most helpful reviews and the top reviews, etc. And because of that, uh, this tends to have more of a friends talking to friends about the books that they like and don't like. Now, writing a good book is and being a good writer is contingent on the reader of the book and, and on the market, right? One person may think a book is excellent and one person may think that exact same book is terrible. So the key here is good book to reader fit. And uh, the way to have good reviews on, on Goodreads is as much about your cover and description as it is about your writing. Your cover and description need to describe your book in such a way that where it makes a promise that people want that promise, right? This book is going to be entertaining. This book is going to be educational. Whatever the promise is that relates to your book. And then the inside of your book needs to deliver on that promise. If your promise is rednecks are going to shoot zombies with shotguns, then there had better be on the inside of that book, rednecks shooting zombies with shotguns, right? The kind of person who's attracted to that kind of cover is not looking for the same thing somebody who's reading a cozy mystery is wanting to read. So good uh, product market fit or book market fit is critical for success on Goodreads. Uh, the only people who need to think that your book is a good book are the people who read it. So it's okay for most people to think that your book is not for them. As long as they don't think the book is for them, they're not going to read it and they're not going to leave reviews for it. Um, bad reviews can come from attracting the wrong kind of readers as much as they can come from writing a bad book. Now, they can also come from writing a bad book, to be fair. So there is objectively a bad writing, and uh, good marketing will help a bad book fail faster. And this is why in the five-year plan, we focus so much on craft in the early years of the plan because writing well, writing the kind of book that people can't put down is the kind of writing that people finish. And the kind of writing people finish is the kind of writing people talk about. And that is the kind of writing that sells well. So we can't fix a bad book with good marketing. And Goodreads, more than any of these other social networks, is the uh, social network really about the writing itself of the actual book. Uh, all of these other social networks is almost like this complete separate game that people are playing. They're trying to be pithy. They're trying to be beautiful. They're trying to be whatever that often is kind of and sometimes entirely separated from the book itself. 
Goodreads is the most focused on the actual book. Uh, there's not a lot to do in Goodreads. It's not a lot of time investment. You're not having to constantly feed Goodreads uh, images uh, like you do on the next social network we're going to talk about, which is Pinterest. So authors who thrive on Pinterest are graphic designers. While Instagram is a celebration of the selfie, Pinterest is a celebration of the photograph itself. Uh, and the key skills to being really good at Pinterest is the ability to create a compelling image and then to take text and put it on that compelling image in a tasteful way that resonates with readers. And then finally to curate and repurpose other people's content in a compelling way. So typically the folks who are really good at Pinterest are um, not necessarily digital natives, but they're fluent in the language of photography and graphic design. They know the difference between a GIF and a JPEG and a PNG, and they know how to work with colors and typography in ways that are compelling. Uh, they have passionate opinions about fonts and which ones are to never be used and which ones can be used. And they could rattle off dozens of fonts from the top of their head and which ones they like and which ones they would never use under any circumstances. It's a certain kind of person who does really really well on Pinterest. And Pinterest, more than any of the other social networks, is the most politically charged from the corporate perspective. So Pinterest, there was recently a whistleblower, I'll link to the news article about it. It's a bunch of news articles about this, but they silence um, political voices that they disagree with. So Pinterest does a lot of uh, viewpoint discrimination. And so uh, Pinterest prefers politically neutral or more progressive voices than to more conservative voices. And if you're wanting to learn more about that, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, and in fact, on my other podcast, one of my listeners, we talked about this in the show, and she kind of rolled her eyes because she was getting a lot of traffic from Pinterest. And the very next week, Pinterest suspended her account. Uh, so it is a real risk. And depending on where you are in the political spectrum, you want to look at it to know if you are um, building a rock or building your house on shifting sand. Because <laughs> getting your account turned off that you spent years building is no fun for anyone. All right. So next, I know we're going through these social networks very quickly. But again, this is just an overview to let you know, hey, is this a fit for me? Yes, no. So the next social network is Reddit. Authors who thrive on Reddit are passionate nerds. And when I use the word passionate, I'm using it in its old meaning, which is suffering, right? The passion of the Christ is the suffering of the Christ. And the people on Reddit are so enthusiastic about their area of passion, whatever it is, they're willing and do suffer for it. They are just that passionate. This means they are very emotionally fickle. They either love you or they hate you. But whatever it is, they do it passionately. <laughs> and uh, there's subreddits on every topic imaginable. But while, while on Quora, people are a little bit more detached and aloof, uh, people on Reddit are very enthusiastic <laughs> and very passionate. And Reddit is defined as much by the upvote as it is by the downvote. So no uh, social network uh, celebrates the downvote quite as much as Reddit. Uh, in fact, a lot of social networks don't have a downvote. In, in fact, when it comes to features, most of these platforms have almost all the same features. You can post video, you can post audio, you can post um, photographs, you can post texts, you can private message people. Um, it's very similar from platform to platform. The main thing that differentiates these platforms is their culture. It's the people who use them and what those people are expecting. 
And the kind of authors who thrive on Reddit share the same level of suffering passion for their area of focus as the uh, as the users of Reddit. And if you, if you are in a room full of nerds, the nerd, you will thrive on Reddit. So if you're in a room full of band nerds and the band nerds see you as a band nerd and, and even like the most nerd of all the band nerds, you're exactly the kind of person who's going to do great on the band subreddit or whatever it is that you're focusing on. So it's not just like kind of the traditional things that people nerd out on. There's a lot of subreddits on Reddit on a lot of different topics, but all of the traditional things people nerd out on are well represented on Reddit. So if you're a computer nerd or a sci-fi nerd or a fantasy nerd or a Tolkien nerd or a Game of Thrones nerd, all of those things are well represented on Reddit and it's an opportunity to connect uh, with other people. And I will say there is a love, once you're famous enough, uh, people may develop a subreddit around you and around your writing. But uh, your level of control is less uh, on Reddit uh, than it is on some of the other social networks. And anyway, the, the culture is just a, a little bit different there. Most authors uh, who write in kind of your traditional um, genres, like, like romance and kind of the more female-dominant uh, genres are less active on Reddit because Reddit more than I think any of the others on this uh, list with the possible exception of Quora really skews male. So while at least in America, most Pinterest users are female, most Instagram users are female, even most uh, Facebook users are female. Reddit is uh, much more masculine in its um, user base. So the types of fiction anyway, that does well on Reddit tends to be the kind of uh, books that men are more likely to read. So sure, men read romance and, and women read sci-fi. It's, it's not a complete you know, split. But again, we're talking about thriving, right? We're talking about what is the island your palm tree is most likely going to grow healthy on? And uh, some uh, genres are more suited to Reddit than others. All right, let's talk about LinkedIn. So authors who thrive on LinkedIn are expensive consultants. So LinkedIn is where people go when they want to talk business with business people. If you get a new job, if you're looking for a job, LinkedIn is where you're at. In fact, a lot of people are very passive on LinkedIn until they're looking for a job, and then they're very active. Right? <laughs> they may ignore LinkedIn for a year, then they decide, I don't like my job anymore, I want a new job, and suddenly they're spending an hour on LinkedIn every day. Now, this is a environment that consultants thrive on. And if you're selling your consulting for $200 an hour or $500 an hour, it's not hard to sell a $20 book on your area of expertise, right? Compared to buying an hour of your time, that book is a bargain. So while a lot of other genres would be like, $20 for a book, that's a fortune. Uh, an expensive consultant, it is not a fortune. It is a bargain. And this was actually a discovery I had when I was first starting a business. I realized I could get access to the brains of many of the top consultants in the world without having to hire them. I just had to read their book. So I would buy their book on Audible. I would listen to it. I'd have an hour or two or 10 or 20 hours of their voice in my head uh, giving me their distilled wisdom. And I found it to be incredibly helpful. So uh, an interesting thing about the types of authors who thrive on LinkedIn, they tend to not identify as authors. They see themselves as consultants who write or speakers who write rather than writers who consult or writers who speak. Uh, so I think that that's an important 
uh, distinction to make. It, it's hard if you're writing fiction uh, to make LinkedIn work for you. That's just not the right environment uh, for most novelists, uh, unless you're writing a business parable, right? If you've written a story that illustrates a business principle, LinkedIn may be perfect. All right, let's talk about Medium. Medium is a blogging platform, and authors who thrive on Medium are insightful bloggers. Now, you can write blog posts directly on Medium. You can also repost blogs from your WordPress blog or wherever your blog is hosted. And one of the things I like about Medium is that it reposts your content, if you set it up to repost to Medium, in a way that preserves the search engine rankings of the original post. So Medium, by default, sets up canonical URLs to honor the original post, so you don't get dinged for duplicate content um, like you normally would if you had uh, your your blog cross-posted. So we'll do an episode on SEO soon, search engine optimization and how Google works and all of that, so don't worry. If, you, if I said canonical URLs and you didn't know what I was talking about, don't panic. We'll get into that in a later episode. Uh, medium readers, though, expect full f- coverage of a topic. This is not where you post your pithy 400-word post. This is where you fully explore whatever it is that you're talking about. Medium articles have a rating estimate, you know, where it's five five minute read or 10 minute read. And people come to medium articles expecting to invest five minutes plus into whatever it is that they're reading. So it's a more kind of thought through, it's a more contemplative medium. Uh, So uh, medium, it's a more contemplative medium and the website is medium. All right. All right. So uh, the next social network and final specific social network we're going to talk about is YouTube. Authors who thrive on YouTube are beautiful videographers. So uh, many of the successful YouTubers are good both in front of and behind the camera, especially in their early years. So most people can't afford a video production crew to stand behind the camera. Uh, So they have to be the talent behind the camera as well. And sometimes this goes all the way to the top. So PewDiePie, who's the number one YouTuber, individual YouTuber, he does his own filming and he does some of his own editing. In fact, he recently got rid of one of his editors who's doing a lot of his own editing now. And he's also the sole talent in front of the camera in 99% of his videos. This is a guy who has over 100 million subscribers, and he's still doing his own editing. This is uh, the kind of skills that are required to be good at YouTube. People who are very comfortable editing video and are comfortable standing in front or sitting in front of the camera. Uh, Also, authors who thrive on YouTube have a good idea of what videos will resonate with their target audience and a way to communicate it visually. And this is really the key. Uh, YouTube, to really work, has to be visually interesting. You can't just talk into the camera for 10 minutes. Uh, You have to find a way of visually keeping it dynamic and interesting. There are lots of techniques on how to do this. There's a whole, like area of expertise of learning how to do YouTube well. One way to keep it interesting visually is to be a good looking person, (laughs) which is, you know, you don't have to be beautiful, but it really helps. If you're a beautiful person, you're the kind of person who will thrive on camera, right? They have a saying in Hollywood, if the camera likes you or not. And there's something about being videogenic that helps with YouTube. It doesn't mean you can't find YouTubers who aren't attractive, but 
for every, uh, you will find a lot more who are attractive. Uh, there's a bias in video, especially towards the physically attractive. So some final thoughts. I may have gone through all of these social networks and you didn't hear a single one that you think is good for you. And you know what? That's okay. <laughs> so um, you really don't have to do social media. Uh, authors got bamboozled that social media was the way to build a platform. And the reality is, is that social media is a way that authors who already have fans and already have readers can connect and interact with the readers and fans they already have if they want to. It's not, in general, a great way of turning strangers into readers because most of the social networks, the game of the social network is so different from the actual act of reading your novel that being good at the game, right? You're really great at having hot takes on Twitter and the most recent political thing that happened, you've got a great hot take and you're able to be snarky right with the rest of them and you're witty and you're funny. You can banter and you get lots of retweets and likes. Just because somebody likes your political hot takes doesn't mean they want to read your zombie romance. And uh, they may love your, your tweets and never buy your book. And so all that investment into giving the tweet people what they want may not actually resonate with book sales. Uh, that said, um, there are case studies in every single one of these social networks of somebody who was able to take success at the game of whatever that social network was, whether it was posting great selfies or witty photos or good videos, and we're able to turn that into best-selling books, right? Many top YouTubers will write autobiographies about themselves, and those books will go on uh, to sell really well because they are so famous that people are curious. How do they get their start? And I've actually read quite a few of those books. I, I find it really fascinating uh, reading about YouTubers and how they handle the withering criticism of the toxic YouTube community. Uh, so I didn't go through these and kind of talk about how toxic the users are. Um, but Reddit and YouTube have some of the most toxic, and Twitter probably have some of the most toxic uh, users. The comments just are witheringly terrible. And uh, I would say LinkedIn and Quora probably have the least toxic users, uh, right? Somebody who's toxic on every other social network, they put their suit on on LinkedIn and they behave themselves. And Quora is just too intellectual for the trolls to bother with. <laughs> They're just like, this isn't for me. Uh, Goodreads is moderately toxic. Um, Pinterest is not very toxic. Um, Facebook is uh, on the less toxic scale. You, you'll find toxic people on Facebook, but because Facebook forces you to comment with your real name and back it up with your real personality, it's harder to be toxic on Facebook. And Instagram, uh, I would put on the less toxic side. Now, in all of these social networks, you'll find communities that use the uh, social network that are more or less toxic. So there's lots of communities that gather on social network. I'm kind of in this episode, I'm kind of talking about the biggest communities on each one and um, kind of what kind of author thrives with that community. But you'll find different communities who also gather on those social networks and it varies country to country. So supposedly most users of Pinterest in the UK are men, not women. It's a very different culture. But because again, these platforms, when it comes to raw features, aren't that different. What really makes a social network is the society that the social network has attracted. And that often has a lot to do with who the first users were and who the most popular users currently are. I will say uh, many top indies 
in their overall marketing mix, go very light on social media. Uh, and in fact, a lot of them just do advertising or maybe they just do Facebook advertising. Um, I find that a lot of beginning authors have the heaviest mix on social media, often because they don't know what else to do and social media is free. So they're like, well, I don't know what to spend money on. I don't know what to get started on. So at least I'll do social media. And I will say this, and I've said it before and I will say it again. If you're an unpublished novelist, Get off of social media and work on your book. <laughs> you, there's nothing you can do on any of these platforms that's going to be as valuable as improving your skills as a writer and actually moving your book towards completion. That is absolutely the most important thing you should be doing. Nothing's going to return better than that. So work on your book, uh, become a better writer, and uh, that is what we teach in the five-year plan. So real quick, I'm going to answer uh, one of your questions. Thanks to those of you who called our listener helpline. Uh, but first, I want to uh, tell you about the five-year plan, which is a course that I crafted with best-selling and award-winning author James L. Rubartin, former co-host of the Novel Marketing Podcast. It's a step-by-step -step guide through the first five years of your writing career. Learn each quarter what to do to succeed, what uh, mistakes to avoid, and what things not to waste your time on, and also how to avoid the pitfalls that hijack success for most authors. And if you're thinking social media is the best way to build your platform, you really need this course because we are going to show you a better way. And you can find out more about this course at novelmarketing.com courses. And our patrons, if you're a patron of the podcast, you can save 50% on the five-year plan. So it is worth it. If you're thinking about becoming uh, a patron and or you're thinking about getting the five-year plan, become a patron first because it will save you a lot of money. Speaking of patrons, our patron today, our featured patron of the week is Mary DeMuth, the author of We Too. Uh, Mary DeMuth unpacks in her book, uh, The Church's Response to Sexual Violence Provides a Healthy Framework for the Church to Become a Haven of Healing Instead of an Institution of Judgment, which is, I think, a very needed book right now. And you can find out more about that in the show notes. We have a link to it. And thank you to Mary DeMuth for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. So with that, let's uh, go to the listener helpline. Uh, and if you would like to leave a question that I answer on a future episode, do give us a call. 512-827-8377. Uh, you can leave a voicemail. We will answer it potentially on a future episode. And you can also upload an MP3 at novelmarketing.com forward slash contact. Hi, Novel Marketing Podcast. My name is Claire Kane, and I'm the author of the Rambler Battalion series. It's a sweet romance, and my question regards rapid release. I'm hearing a lot about people rapid releasing and how it effectively sort of games the Amazon algorithm to keep your name and your books um, jumping up every 30 days if you release every 30 days or every three weeks. Obviously, that's not true for every genre, but particularly for romance. And I'm wondering if you guys would speak to this at some point, particularly um, is it an effective tool for people who are not exclusive with Amazon? Claire, thank you for uh, the question. This is a great topic. And for those of you who don't know what rapid release is, this is where books are released in rapid succession. So you have a trilogy and you release them all uh, you know, in a three-month window, let's say, or in a 
uh, even a six-week window. So it's more of a Netflix binge drop where Netflix will give you a whole season of a show all at once rather than the traditional way of trickling it out. And the thinking behind rapid release is that each book is like waves crashing on a seashore, building on each other, building more and more attention. And it can work. So the authors who are talking about this being an effective strategy are not blowing smoke. Uh, But it doesn't work for everyone. So let me talk about when it can work and when it can't work. So I was talking with an author uh, just last week who spent years building up a trilogy, did a rapid release, and after two months, there was nothing. He, he did a big release, he had no sales, and now he was basically starting over from scratch. And I think that um, when a new technique gets you know, uh, trumpeted by popular and successful authors, everyone thinks they can use that technique as well. Some things only work for popular and successful authors. And this is one of those techniques. So if you already have a good group of readers, let's say you have a thousand core readers who buy every book that you write, and they buy every book in the first month it comes out, right? This, these are your thousand true fans, um, or you know you have a ten thousand true fans. But let's just say you have a thousand true fans. Uh, a rapid release strategy can be really great for them, and uh, leveraging those thousand fans to encourage them to do their buying all in a really narrow window, which helps you get higher on the rankings, which then helps you attract more readers and the strategy can work. It also works really well for authors who are able to write quickly. So the ultimate rapid release schedule, and I know authors who can do this, they write a book a month. And every book, they have a new book come out. I'm sorry, every month they have a new book come out and it's like waves crashing on the shore and each book cross promotes the other books and they have these big long series and they all uh, help each other. It's very synergistic and they have a group of people who read every book that they write and they wait you know, for the next month, they buy the next book and they're very happy and you don't actually need that many fans to make a living if you can write a book a month. Uh, obviously, not very many authors are able to write that quickly. It works better in certain genres than others. And um, it, it's not recommended. If, you, if it takes you a year to write a book, I don't recommend waiting three years and then doing a rapid release of your trilogy. I don't think that's a good strategy. Because there is a lot to be said about the traditional launch strategy where you give each book its due. Uh, because if that first one fails for whatever reason, you don't have any time to fix it or fix your strategy. Maybe maybe the book was good, but your launch strategy was flawed for whatever reason. If you're going with the traditional model where you're launching a book a year, let's say, you have a whole year to learn from your mistakes and put together a better, newer strategy. So uh, I see rapid releases strategy that's less likely to work for newer authors and it's less likely to work for slower authors. And um, I would say it's also probably less likely to work in non-genre fiction. So if you're writing genre fiction where people are used to series and expect series of books, I I would expect it to work better. I would expect it to work less in kind of the more traditional uh, standalone book uh, style genres. Um, And then as regards to the second part of your question about being exclusive to Amazon, I don't see it having a particularly big impact on whether or not uh, rapid release affects the algorithm. I don't think Amazon's algorithm is looking at whether someone is exclusive or not. Uh, How it will affect you is if you're not exclusive to Amazon, you're going to be making less money on Amazon 
Amazon's going to give you a smaller cut, a significantly smaller cut of your book sales, which means you're going to have to make up those book sales on other sites like iBooks and Kobo, um, etc. Nook. And the, each of those sites have their own different algorithms, and those own, those different algorithms may help rapid release or not. Uh, and I, I'm not as familiar with how those algorithms work, I, although I will say probably would work worse on iBooks. So iBooks really rewards a um, pre-launch strategy where you have a long pre-order window where you're getting pre-orders for weeks or months because it counts all of your pre-orders over again on launch day. And so having your pre-order open for a year on iBooks is actually a really solid strategy, whereas that same strategy wouldn't work as well on Amazon. So um, that is what I have to say about rapid release. Uh, if you have more questions about this or want me to do a whole episode really uh, digging into rapid release, uh, feel free to let us know in the comments. We'll say uh, I've been... Um, watching my daughter this week she's learning how to walk she's actually been trying for the last several uh, weeks uh, you know taking steps and early she really struggled because when she would fall down we would have to get her back up she didn't know how to stand up on her own and uh, just in the last few days she's learned how to consistently get to her feet without the aid of a table or a couch or something she can stand up on her own and it's been key uh, for her learning to walk because now um, she can practice on her own. And I think that there's a powerful metaphor here for business and for life. Maybe it's even a spiritual metaphor of learning to get back up is so key. Uh, you know, she is falling down all the time. And when she falls down, she just giggles and laughs and she enjoys the attention. And you know, when she takes three steps, we're counting them as she does it. And she, we're very excited for her. Um, although not too excited. I'm, I'm actually in no rush for her to learn to walk because she's already a very busy baby and gets into all the trouble she possibly can get into. And as a walker, it's only going to accelerate. <laughs> but anyway, it's been fun to watch. So that's the latest from the home front. Do let me know what you think of this format. I'm going to keep experimenting with formats, uh, but uh, this kind of topic and then and then kind of announcements and then question followed by personal update, if there is any, is the current format. We'll see what uh, you think. Feel free to leave a comment on novelmarketing.com or in the Facebook group. And don't forget the listener helpline, 512-827-8377. Do send in your question. This show won't work. Uh, or at least this format won't work without your voice questions. So, it, hey, it's free promotion for your book. Anyway, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.